Revelation, we are changing gears. Chapter 6 is where we are. You can make your way there. We're moving away from what the church was like to where the church is in chapters 4 and 5 into what awaits this world in chapter 6. And so let's stand and let's read a little bit of this. Chapter 6, verse 1, now, because the church is safely tucked away in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, and that church would be those who, are, who have allowed and who have made Jesus Christ the Lord of their life. He says, now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard a, one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, come and see, and I looked. And behold, there was something amazing there, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, like a bow and arrow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When the one on the throne opened, or when Jesus opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see, and another horse, fiery red, went out. And it is granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that peace should and that people should kill one another, and there is given to him this one on this fiery red horse, a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked and behold a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand and heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him. So you know this horse is ugly, ugly. And power was given to them over a, over a fourth of the earth. Them, these four riders on these horses. Power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death. And by the beast of the earth. And Father, we... We want to know with great certainty Lord we want to have just that great assurance of our own salvation and Lord I ask specifically for each one of us that we would own it in such a way that it would cause us to be passionate about those who are, are not saved those who are not born again those who have not turned to Jesus. And that, Lord, you would give us those good feet. Lord, those beautiful feet to go out and preach the gospel to those that you put around us. So God, please bless our time in your word here in Jesus' name. You can be seated. So what does the future hold? It seems to be the question. People pay big money today to seek to figure it out. You and I, we know who holds the future. 
But it seems like a lot of people in the world, especially those who are lost, are always looking, seeking to find what lies ahead. For proof of that, the books, the outer body experience books. The, I, I, I code blued and, and I, I saw this stuff and, and so all of a sudden these books become bestsellers. Why? Because people want to know what lies ahead. Others, well, they consult with fortune tellers and horoscopes and, oh, I can't do that today or, or the what's your sign people or the astrologers to try and figure it out. Then there's those who are palm readers. That's their thing. And I would imagine there are some who live their lives based upon what the fortune cookie says. I would. Others use Google. I typed in how to know the future. 2,150,000,000 hits in 0.47 seconds. And talk about a desperate world with crazy answers. Crazy but for us as believers, because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, we can look into God's word and we can see the future. This is it. The only problem that we have in seeing the future is we don't know the starting point. We don't know the day or the hour that we're going to report. We have our ticket. We're ready to go. We know the departure is going to happen because Jesus said so. We just don't know when. Last week, we looked at the believer's future in chapters 4 and 5. We see the church in his, is in heaven. And as we head into chapter 6, as we start this section in this book that is referred to as the Great Tribulation period or the seven-year period of God's judgment on this earth, you could also call this the non-believer's future or the make-believer's future or the atheist or agnostic's future. And see, this is all going to end with the big battle in chapter 19, known as the Battle of Armageddon. So for any crazy enough, because I'm sure they're out there thinking, I'm just going to stick around and live my life my way until I see the church rapture. Then I'm going to get it together. Doubt it. If you can't get it together and live for Jesus now when the church is present, how do you know you're going to get it together when the church is absent? So for any crazy enough to be thinking that they're going to stick around during this time and then surrender to Jesus in that day, this is this right here from chapters 6 to 19. This is what awaits you, literally hell on earth. We know our destiny is dependent upon Jesus being the master of our life today. So to put off or to prolong the decision to turn to Jesus and allow him to be Lord, this is what will await you who have never turned to Jesus as the Lord of their life. This is it. You know, the moment the church is pulled to heaven from this earth, it's going to plunge a series of events, cataclysmic events, that are going to last for seven years. And that's what we're going to read about. The Bible says that the church today, with the presence of the Holy Spirit in them, is restraining evil. Okay? Us, the church, that makes up the church around the world. We are restraining evil. But once we're out of here, that evil will no longer be restrained. So as you look at the world today, the shootings, the STDs, the drugs, the natural disasters, exploitation of children, the immorality, you haven't seen anything yet because this is all restrained evil. But once the church is out of here, the seven-year clock will start to run much like a woman in labor. That's what Jesus talks about. 
The contractions will start small, but they will increase in size and in space over time. Then the water breaks, and then the things accelerate even faster and faster, and next thing you know, you have a baby. Well, that's what happens here in chapters 6 through 19. The judgment begins being poured out small, but with every hour, the intensity builds and builds until it's this one great big battle. So why is it that way? Well, I think God has it that way so mankind will repent. I think God has it this way so that the lost will, whoa, where'd the church go? Where'd my friend? Oh, they they were right. And so then, well, you know, oh, look at this. And then they're going to respond to the gospel. Because if they don't, what awaits them is 100-pound hailstones landing on their heads. I can't imagine that would be fun at all. I've entitled chapter 6, The Opening Night of the Show. Because this is where it starts. Because chapters 6 to 19, God shows us how he's going to deal with the world that has rejected his son and rejected the witness of his kids. That's us. Now I saw, as John writes this, I saw this. We're going to see this over and over. I saw this. I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, come and see. And so I looked, and behold, you should write, a counterfeiter, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. He went out conquering and to conquer. This one coming on the white horse is the Antichrist. Some would say it's Jesus. But you know what? Test the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, 13 to 16. And again, the picture we'll see in Revelation chapter 19, 11 to 16, and you'll discover that this one here, as we allow the word to speak for himself, this is none other than the Antichrist. Now, there are characteristics of him that are similar to Jesus. That's why he's called the Antichrist or the cheap counterfeit. He's the fake Jesus Christ. He has to have some similarities or no one would believe him. And so all of the devil's lies. They always have a high percentage of truth. We should all know that by now. Otherwise, none of us would believe it. Look at Eve. 75% truth, 25% lie, and she went in and bit on it, and boom, here we are today. And so here he comes. This crown on the Antichrist in verse 1, it's not a diadem crown or a permanent crown that we're going to see in Revelation chapter 19, but rather the Greek word is a Stephanus crown. You know, the little wreath made out of ivy and olive branches and has leaves on it. But over time, it's going to dry up and fall apart. But when the Antichrist comes on the scene, it's going to look good at the beginning of time But over time, it's just going to be sticks on his head. Why? Because he's the uh, anti. He's not the other. He's the antichrist. So how will this riding a white horse? Well, didn't we see that someplace else? Yeah, it's in Revelation 19. Jesus comes on a white horse. But Jesus comes with the sword. This one here comes with a bow. And he's wearing this crown of olive branches. And it says he's going to conquer. Well, how's he going to conquer? I believe in the beginning he'll conquer as a peacemaker, even though I believe, and I, may, I might stand alone here, I believe he'll kill from day one. 
He'll do all of that under the banner of a peacemaker. Certainly he's going to kill those who turn to Christ. He's going to kill those. But he's going to come in as a peacemaker, and that's what our world's looking for today, it seems. Peacemaker. Someone who can bring peace. And so the Antichrist will set up his kingdom in the final seven years of God's clock as a peacemaker. Why? Because God allows him. We've got to understand that. See, God is gracious, but God is also just. God is loving, but God is just. For a just God to be loving, he has to be just. Or for a loving God to be just, he has to be just. No one's sending their son to die for the sins of the world and then going, well, you know, there's other ways. Oh, I was just kidding. Nobody would do that. And so we see here this first seal sets the Antichrist up as a winner. He'll receive the authority, the throne, and kingdoms from Satan that Satan has. And he's going to trade it. Satan's going to trade it all in as long as he's worshipped. And so he's going to bring some sort of peace to the Middle East and the world for three and a half years. And he'll help the Israelites build their temple. He'll set up a cashless society where if you don't worship him, you'll be killed. We'll see that in chapter 13. In John chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus says this, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. It's going to happen. People are going to receive him. You go to bed one night, the bride is gone when you wake up. You who did not allow Jesus to be the Lord of your life, you're going to turn on the TV and there's the headlines. A man seeking to be the ruler over the entire world. It's going to happen. Why? Because God's declared it. He'll start small. Maybe using peace and some unseen force to remove anything and everything in his way. And he'll build an intensity until the Antichrist rules over man as a false messiah. This man will rise to govern the entire world. He'll be a dictator. But his rule will be over the earth. And my best guess is he's going to come out of, the Western, out of Western Europe. Maybe out of the NATO uh, nations. But nobody knows for sure. We can't say, yeah, he's going to come right here. And like I said, for the first three and a half years, he's coming as a man of peace, economic genius, and yet also, I believe, a mass murderer. Because he's the Antichrist. Think about what Jesus did. Jesus came to this earth to save and to bring and to give life. And the Antichrist comes to take and to receive and to give death. Of course, he doesn't promise that. But if you serve him, that's what you're going to get. And I'm fairly certain from day one he comes as a fraud and one who seeks to take life. Look at verse 2 here. Conquering in verse 2 is not future tense, it's present tense. It says he went out as a simple past tense fact, present tense, conquering. And no doubt, peace will be a huge part of his conquering. But he'll bring warring powers together. He'll get treaties signed all over the world. The world will look to him as the Messiah, the little savior of their present world. We see he will come with supernatural powers. The power of Satan that God allows. Why? Because this is going to fulfill God's purpose. Because this is God's final seven years. 
This is time for God to pour out his judgment on a world that rejected his son. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. Check this out. And that people should kill one another. That sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? And there was given to him a great sword. So please notice, what does this fiery red horse do? Well, it comes and takes peace. And when you take peace, chaos ensues. When peace is lacking on this earth, the opposite of peace is chaos. So this second red horse is the horse of war. He comes. The world is plunged into great wars and conflicts, which will accumulate in, Acts, or in Revelation chapter 19, known as the Battle of Armageddon. But can you imagine just people killing one another? It's already going on, but this is nothing. Will it be daily mall and school shootings filling the newspaper and the newscast? Street violence and death will be everywhere. And I believe as we move along that people will be killing and stealing people's food. Because the next horse we're going to read of is famine. You look at the hurricanes when people loot, that's nothing. They're going to loot people's homes. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they, those left behind by choice, those false professions of faith, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. It could happen any day. But until that first contraction hits, you don't know when. But when that first contraction hits, we're already gone. We're gone before that. We're safely tucked away in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. You know, if you've been pregnant or you've been the husband and, you know, you're waiting for that first contraction to hit. Once that hits, you know a baby is on his or her way. You know it's going to happen. It's today or tomorrow, but it's going to happen. What's well, the same with these left behind? When they say peace and safety, bam! They're not going to see it coming. So many are not going to escape. But Paul continues and says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. We're not, team. We're not in darkness. We're, plus, we have God's word to declare it to us. So we need to be ready and watching. And like Jesus says in, in Luke 21 or 22, we need to be praying that we'd be found worthy. And our worthiness is going to come from no one else other than Jesus Christ. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the Four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius. That's what it's going to be like. You want the wheat? It's going to cost you a denarius. If you're really hungry, you can get three quarts of barley. 
Anybody eaten barley lately? I have. <laughs> Not lately, once. I'll just, I'll just eat wheat. Thank you. And do not harm the oil and the wine. So for, following the wars, there is always tremendous famine. Come to South Sudan with me. I'll show you. Tremendous famine. Nobody grows anything because people just steal it. So they're utterly dependent upon rice and beans, beans from the United Nations. But that's only one country. This black horse represents a tremendous famine that always follows the red horse, which is war. So somewhere along these final seven years at the, of the Antichrist system, a quart of wheat is going to cost you a denarius. So how much is that? Well, Jesus knows. Matthew 20, verse 2, please. Go look there. You'll find the answer. And then you can come back and write, write the answer here. Because in Matthew chapter 20, verse 2, Jesus says, as he tells this parable, when they had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out into his vineyard. So a denarius is a day's wage. So during this time period on this earth, you will work all day for a very, very small loaf of bread. You know, you go to those fancy restaurants, they bring you that little mini loaf of bread. It's going to feed your family if you choose to stay behind. The oil and the wine biblically symbolize luxuries. And, and that makes sense. The rich will survive because they have lots of dineros. But the rest of mankind, they'll suffer. Day's wage. Just to buy a little loaf of bread. Not God's choice. Man's choice. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale, yeah, ugly, ugly horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him. So you have the Antichrist coming Red horse of war, black horse of famine, and, and always in death and or war and famine, you have death as this pale, ugly horse shows up. And power was given to, not him, them. These four ugly horse riders. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. Imagine being mauled to death by a bear or a lion or an elephant. This word pale in the Greek is where we get our English word chlorine. It's like chloros. So this horse is really ugly. After the wars and the famine and all the dictatorship that we've seen from the previous three horsemen, it's going to be tremendous death. I looked yesterday, there's 7.6 billion people on the earth. Let's round it up to eight just for simple math. So if there's eight billion people, after these first four seals have been opened, two billion people will be dead in less than seven years. It's going to be ugly. You think, okay, so what is all this supposed to do for me? Well... I should be excited I'm born again and I should fall on my face and start to pray for the lost like never before because this is their future. Well, I've, I've shared with them. Yeah, but have you prayed for them? 
continually praying, asking, begging God to open their eyes, to remove the scales that the enemy has blinded them with. I think that's why we get to see what's gonna, what awaits them. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, he said this, For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the kingdom of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But we know some are going to be saved. Notice in verse 8 it reads, And power was given to them. Who gave him the power? Well, I think the one holding the scroll. The Father's still in control of everything. This is what we got to understand. The Father is totally in control, even though the world seems like it's out of control. You know, God's just using the devil's insanity to bring about his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. So then he opens this fifth seal, John says. And I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Well, who are these? Well, for better words, or for lack of better words, these are the procrastinators. These are the bad choice makers. These are those who get saved during the tribulation period. Maybe they're your friends. Maybe they're the lukewarm, unsaved ones in the church. I don't know. But I know they don't take the mark of the beast, which gets them killed. And here they are. They're all tucked away in heaven under the altar. We weren't under the altar in chapters 4 and 5. We are before the throne, but here these are under the altar. Now, the interesting thing about this group here under the altar, when we get to chapter 20, it seems like they are still a separate group, but I, I can't be certain. I haven't been there. See, I say turn to Jesus today and be a part of the bride of Christ. Don't be a separate group in heaven, whatever that means in chapter 20. Today's the day. It's critical. If you have heard the gospel and you haven't turned, it's critical for you today to turn. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Yeah, everyone has to see this. And then you have to decide what it means. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, just go backwards. About 30 pages or so, 40. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you can come read the whole chapter. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. So the lawless one is the Antichrist. The coming of the Antichrist is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, because that's all he knows. He's a liar. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Why? Well, he's going to tell us. Paul's going to tell us right here. Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And, and that makes sense, right? You perish, if you don't receive the love of the truth, you're going to perish. So that makes sense. Now, I could be wrong. But I believe these are those who heard the gospel, but for whatever reason, chose to say no thank you to Jesus, and they cannot be saved during the tribulation period. I could be wrong. We see they're right here in, in Revelation 6. They're under the altar. But I believe these here are those that heard and said, no, thank you. And there's no hope for them. But I could be wrong. Look at verse 11 here in 2 Thessalonians. And for this reason, God will send them. What reason? 
Well, they chose not to receive the love of the truth. So for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, like I said, I could be wrong. Pastor Chuck says about this passage here, there are those out there, that it's, he's talking about me, there are those out here who believe that if you hear today and reject Jesus, God will send strong delusion to you who are left behind. He says there are those out here who believe that. I think that. He also goes on to say he thinks that those who believe that are wrong. Well, that's okay. I don't have a problem being wrong. But then he goes on to say he could be wrong. Well, who's right? I don't know. He goes on to say, why live under a question mark? See, I'd be willing to change my mind on who these people are that Paul writes of as long as you can tell me who these people are. Because he doesn't give an answer. He just says there's those who think this, but, you know, I could be wrong, but, hey, I don't want anyone to live under a question mark. So who are these people? Well, I think it's very clear if you just let the word speak for himself. If you don't receive or lay hold of the love of the truth that you might be saved today, if you don't turn to Jesus Christ and allow him to be the Lord of your life, this could be you. And again, like I said, I have no problem being wrong, but like Pastor Chuck said, why live under the cloud of a question mark? Same passage, he went on to say, and I quote, I don't want to assure you of something that may not be because I don't want you in heaven or in hell pointing at me and saying, you led me wrong, man. So who are these? I don't know. But I know this. If you've heard the gospel and you, you come to church, but you've never allowed Jesus to be the Lord of your life, this could be you. That's why it's critical for you to turn to Jesus today. We know in chapter 14... In the book of Revelation, an angel will go out and preach the everlasting gospel to all of creation. So many will be saved. That's certainly where these under the altar come from. We also know a different angel will declare to the whole world, if anyone receives the mark of the beast, they will be eternally condemned. And so those who say Jesus is Lord and receive, refuse to receive the mark of the the beasts, well, they're going to be beheaded. We'll see that as we travel through this book. They get beheaded, and they're going to be here underneath the altar. And look, what, look at their words that they cry out here. It's interesting. And they cried with a loud voice in verse 10, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord? How long until you get even for us? I mean, isn't that an interesting question that these that have, have turned to Christ but and did not receive the mark of the beast? That's their question. They want to know. How long until you get even? How long until you take vengeance on them? You know, you, we know there are those who have been slain for their testimony of Jesus Christ during the tribulation period. We see them right here. However, they don't enter into the heavenly scene until chapter 7, but you and I did in chapters 4 and 5. Here they are under the altar in chapter 6. 
Chapter 13 will tell us how they got there. Chapter 14 will tell us why. Chapter 20 shows this group as the martyred ones. But you know what? There's an easy way to go and a hard way. It's kind of up to you. Jonah learned the hard way. He could have went the easy way. He learned the hard way. He went via the fish. He didn't have to go that way. And yet, how do you know you're going to be able to live for Jesus in the midst of persecution if you can't live for him now? Those aren't good odds. I don't think any of us want to live our life with a question mark as an unsure person today. We, we, team, we've got to be all in. Jesus has to be the Lord of our life. That's it's critical. So these that are under the altar saying, hey, how long? Look at verse 11. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, so there's more who's going to not take the mark of beasts who will turn to Jesus, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So how do you get into heaven during the last day's tribulation? You have to die. You have to be killed. So how do I become a believer today? Oh, I got to die. I got to turn to Christ. I need to become a new creature in Christ. The old things passed away. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Well, how does that happen? When Christ moves in, John chapter 1, verse 12, that as many as received him, to them God gave the right to be called children of God, to as many as believed in his name. Paul writes that it's the love of Christ in them that compels them to live the way they do. It's not the love for Christ. Yes, we should love Christ. We should worship him. But he writes about the love of Christ in him. See, today, today's the, live for, today's the day to live for Christ. Today's the day to be on fire. Today, you and I enter in by the blood of the Lamb and His grace. But then, the way in, you're going to have to be killed as a follower of Christ to get in. That doesn't sound like fun. God knows the heart of man. He knows who's going to bow their knee on this earth and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior before all hell breaks out. And He knows those who are going to be stubborn and wait. And he also knows those who are not going to get in at all. See, if God created it, he also controls it. He knows everything. He knows those who are going to refuse. He knows those who are going to be stubborn. We don't want to be stubborn. We want to be in Christ today because Christ is in us. I looked all the way through this, John says, I looked, I looked, I looked. As he writes here, I looked when he opened the sixth seal as Jesus peels off that sixth seal. And behold, there was a great earthquake. He saw that. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. He saw that. And the moon became blood. He saw that. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth. Could you imagine what that's going to be like? And the stars of heaven fell to the earth. Well, what exactly does that look like, John? Well, he tells us, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken 
by a mighty wind. He saw that. Now, if you've ever had fruit trees and the fruit on it is overripe, if a windstorm comes, what happens to it all? You walk out there and you go, oh, I should have picked it yesterday because it's all on the ground. And can you imagine what this scene's going to look like? The stars of heaven falling to the earth. I'll guarantee you people aren't going to be worshiping the holes in the ground like they do in Arizona. Some would say nuclear holocaust here. I don't know. Can't we just say God is shaking? God is doing the shaking here because the Antichrist is hassling his kids? The world is right in predicting the big one is coming. If you lived in California, oh, the big one's coming. It's coming. We can see all this stuff. Yeah, they're right. It's coming, all right. Because one day it's going to happen. But not a local earthquake. It will be a global one when God is going to pour out the big earthquake on them because he's faithful. He is faithful today in desiring that none should perish. And he's faithful in, 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 his, in this chapter of doing what he said he would do. Faithful to you and I right up to the end. And trust me, this is not an earthquake you want to be around for. doesn't stop there. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up. And every mountain and island got new GPS coordinates. I mean, that's, that's what it says. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. No longer having that same geographical location. So how far moved? That's my question. Okay, so John, how far? Did they go like feet, inches, miles? There's coming a day when the islands and the mountains will just disappear. We'll see that in chapter 16. But for now, they're moved. I mean, how frightening of an event is that? That they're moved. Especially if you're in the caves of the mountains hiding, and all of a sudden they, they start shaking and they move. It's crazy. Look back at verse 12. I looked, and behold. It's going to happen. John saw these things. Verse 15. And the kings of the earth, If you are unsaved, you are in one of these categories. If you have never, if Jesus Christ is not the Lord of your life, I'm not talking about praying a prayer. I've yet to find praying a prayer that gets me into heaven. But if he's not the Lord of your life, and see, the only reason he's the Lord of your life because you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead for your sins. That's, and, so, that's, and so you turn and you say yes. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men. Wow, that sounds like all the upper echelon. No, no, it includes everybody. Every slave and every free man. I add, did not repent. I mean, certainly that's God's heart and judgment that they would repent. But these here, they don't repent. So please, don't think you're going to wait until all this happens and then make a decision. So every walk of mankind, because of their failure to turn to Jesus, look what it says, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, you know those mountains that moved? And they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's suicide. Interesting, is it not, that 
By this point, mankind will know God is giving them what they want. See, they don't want the grace of God. They want the wrath of God. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Rather than running to Him, they are running away from Him. People do that today. Rather than running to Jesus, I'm just going to run from Him and run my life. Oh yeah, we saw that in the Laodicean church. Nothing good there. Please notice what they are running from. What does it say in your Bible? The wrath of who? Wrath of the Lamb. When's the last time you were anxious when you got around a bunch of lambs? Anyone ever had them? We had them growing up. There is nothing anxious. You don't have to be anxious about nothing other than coming and rubbing against you. But this lamb, who's the king of kings and lord of lords, this lamb, mankind, is trembling. And we see that in the Gospels, though. We see Jesus the same way. We see Jesus as loving, but we also see he is just all at the same time. We see Jesus allowing the little children to come to him, but then we also see Jesus making a whip and driving the, the, the merchants and the sellers and the people that were, that were making merchandise in his dad's house, and he drove them out. We see Jesus with no desire to condemn the woman caught in adultery, but rather he says, woman, I I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Yet in Matthew chapter 23, those same ones that brought that woman to Jesus, he groups them all together and calls them brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, serpents, hypocrites, fools, and blind guides. All from the same lamb. The all-loving, gracious Lamb of God, and the Lamb that was slain is just in all his actions here. And look what they're saying here in verse 17. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Not any left behind, that's for sure. That's why they're hiding in the caves. That's why the Bible says today's the day of salvation. See, all the people on the earth have a problem. And what takes place through this conflict that they find themselves in? Well, the same thing that took place between Herod and Pilate. They unite together. The Bible says they become friends. Pilate and Herod did. And so here, during this this time of great chaos, the world's going to come together. They're going to set aside their personal differences for the common goal, and they're going to seek to wage war on God. Anybody want to take a guess at who wins? We're not going to want to miss it. But then you're not going to want to watch it as an earth dweller either. In the, in the last days during the tribulation, the response to God's judgment towards man, it's not repentance. Do you see what it is in these verses here? They're not repenting and turning to Jesus. The, their first response was that of Adam and Eve. Remember when God shows up in Acts chapter 3 and verse 8? And what does Adam and Eve do? They take off running and hid themselves from God. Do you see that here in verse 15? They're hiding. The second response, rather than repentance, is that of suicide. Do you see it there in verse 16? I mean, it's crazy. With the wrong perception of God, people believe and do the craziest things. They want the rocks to fall on them. 
Oh, yeah, like that's going to fix everything. Jesus said in Luke 20, verse 17, What then is this that is written, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? Whoever falls on the stone will be broken. That's salvation. Falling on Jesus, dying to yourself, letting him be the Lord of your life, receiving him as Lord. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. That's what they're calling for here. Hey, stones fall on us, grind us to powder. And that choice is available to any and all who have never turned to Jesus. You can turn to him and fall upon him and declare him to be the master over your life. We can fall upon the mercies of God today. We can allow him to wash us and forgive us of all of our sins and govern over our lives. We can do it God's way or we're going to be crushed by God his way in the end. God's heart is that, because he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, God's heart is that we would do it his way today. Look at verse 16. Have you ever seen the sign, beware of the ferocious lamb? I don't even think they make one. You know, you see the beware of dog sign on people's gates. Ever seen one? Beware of the ferocious lamb. Oh. And yet the people on this earth are running for their lives because of the lamb. Rather than running to him, they're running away from him. Look at verse 17. What does this teach us here? What did the world know? They knew it was coming. For the great day of his wrath is past tense fact come and who is able to stand. It appears that man in his stubbornness has, con has continually rejected God's will for their lives. And as a result of rejecting that plan, they are calling curses down upon themselves. Rather than repenting, as we go through chapter 6 through 19, they are going to be cursing God rather than repenting. Or to put it a different way, man in his wickedness cries out to the creation rather than the creator. That's crazy. So this is the opening night team. Chapter 7 will give us some more detail. Chapters 8 and 9 are the next scenes of God's play, followed by another break or interruption with additional details in chapters 12 through 15, followed by the final judgments being poured out in chapter 16, New detailed chapters 8, 17, and 18, and then the final scene of the seven-year tribulation with the Battle of Armageddon in chapter 19. And then you get some more future events in chapters 20 to 22. And if you remember all of that, you can read this book and understand everything that's understandable. Well, can you repeat it? No, just listen to it on the tape. You can, you can, it's all right there. But just mark it up, you know, here, here's, here's this, here's the break, here's this, here's a break. It's written like the book of uh, Genesis, chapter 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 1 is all of creation, and then chapter 2, it adds some detail to parts of creation. It's not a second day of creation, no, it adds detail to the first chapter of creation. See, this is why Jesus has left us his word, so his bride can read all of it. And God's heart is that we would grow. I mean, that's God's heart, that we would grow. We read it in Peter. Desire the pure milk of the word that you may thereby grow if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. That's God's heart. So as we wind this thing down, I got to ask you, are you rejecting God's love towards you? 
Because you either receive it or you reject it. He died to be your Lord, and, and with Jesus being Lord over you, you receive his forgiveness, his love, his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his second chances, his 15th chances, his bazillionth chances, his plan for your life, his faithfulness, his promises. The list goes on and on for 7,000 times over. Don't reject, receive. Because who's able to stand? If you think you can on your own, well, that proves Jesus is not the Lord of your life. Nobody can stand on their own. This is what he said in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, bears much fruit. for without me you can do nothing. And yet that's the fallacy of the world today. I don't need that. I'm good. For those who have never confessed Jesus as the Lord of your life, this is for you. It comes out of Romans chapter 10. If you're a believer, you should pray for them because they're here. Jesus said they're always going to be in our midst. And this is what it says in Romans 10. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach that if, we, that if you confess with your mouth, this is it. This is, this is what God's speaking to you. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you were going your way, doing your thing when you walked in here. And then the Spirit of God is speaking to you, saying, turn to Jesus. Turn to the one who died for you and rose again from the dead that your sins might be blotted out. But you have to make the turn. You're doing your thing, walking in, minding your own business. Okay, I'll go to church. But all of a sudden, the Spirit of God is accosting you, and he's telling you, he's saying to you, he's calling you, turn to the Lord Jesus for salvation. If that's you, you've got to turn. That's you. You got to say yes to Jesus. Because, see, when you say yes to Jesus, you say no to his wrath. It's critical. Is that you? I don't know. I don't know. But I know that's why God brought you here. Never, God doesn't, it's not because you wandered in. No, it's because God wants you to see. And Judy writes, on some save with compassion and others with fear. So I guess if I walked in as an unbeliever, this would definitely be the saving with fear because it's like, who would want to go through this? Today's the day. Father, we're thankful for all that you want to do in our lives. And Lord, we know that you 